0: Hi, this is Small Findings, a podcast that brings you small bits of information that I've come across and put away each week, hopefully each week. I'm Jim Kang, I'm an artist, and in my day job, a software developer and a recent adherent to Zettelkassen. Zettelkassen is an information filing method that Nicholas Luhmann pioneered in the 50s. Um, he was a sociologist who apparently um, wrote many papers, and I, I, I actually don't know what the significance of these papers are, but he was supposed to be very productive as a result of his Zettelkassen. Um and basically, Zettelkasten is a personal wiki. So, uh, what you do is every time you learn something, you summarize it in your own words. Uh, and then you sign it an ID, uh, like uh, Lumen did this on like note cards. Um, and then you write references to related concepts, and you just put the IDs of those cards on there. And you also put tags on. Um, the cards. And yeah, basically, this is a personal wiki, um, that, that Lumen, um, like built himself in the fifties by hand using, um, pieces of paper and, and pen. So the way I'm doing it is with, you know, markdown on GitHub. I have to admit, I may, I may not stick with this. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I find it interesting to, um, kind of digest information more fully than I normally have, and I thought it might be fun to share some of the things I've found and written down with you. Anyway, on to the findings. So, um, the first thing, well, if you heard a cat there, that is my cat, Dr. Wiley, who does not accumulate many findings, but, um... I was reading in the London Review, London Review of Books that in 1916, there were a lot of shark attacks in New Jersey. Um, it attacked people uh, who were mainly tourists uh, on the shores of New Jersey, and it depressed that economy. Um, Woodrow Wilson was the former governor of New Jersey and president at that time, and World War I was going on. So you'd think that uh, in wartime, presidents usually have a lot of support, whether they'd you know whether that makes sense or not, uh, but the people of New Jersey were angry at Woodrow Wilson. he lost the state in the election that year, and the counties nearest the shore voted most heavily against him because they had to blame someone for the shark attacks, and they blamed. Woodrow Wilson, and his opponents even used, like, shark icons and things in their their, uh, literature. So, yeah, 1916 shark attacks. And now, the next finding is about painting. Um, So, when you're painting... Uh, a lot of dark areas that just like look black to you, but are different levels of darkness. Um, and my instinct is to just use pure value, right? Pure, um, just make things darker and lighter, literally, because that's how you see them. Uh, but when you're painting something in a lot of dark areas or shadows, um, some of the dynamics among the dark parts can be created using hue, right? So there's you know, some aspects of color, there's hue, right? Which is, you know, how usually what people think of is what color it is. Like, is it, how, how red is it? How blue is it? How green is it? Um, but you could use that as well as value. Like, and and that can make different areas within like all these dark parts stand out. Just painting uh, with very various, various values of black uh, like will often result in a lot of shapes that don't stand out this happened to me. Um, I'm doing a cat painting right now, a painting of two cats that, uh, were, that are on a couch with like a lot of shadows. Um, and like a lot of the shadows just look like flat, uh, adding a little bit a tiny bit of blue, for example, uh, is, and that's what I did helped, uh, helped with, like, different parts standing out, uh, helped make different uh, things looked look a little darker. Um, I actually got this tip from my partner, Kat, who studied art in college um, and does, you know, regular painting, uh, regularly. The... The same, I bet, can be said, uh, said with painting something with like lots of light areas where everything looks white and some things look brighter than others. Maybe you could add some other colors there really subtly to make them stand out. Uh, this next thing is a little bit technical, but not too technical. Uh, something I learned accidentally was that in a web page, right, I'm sure you've seen a web page and, you know, web pages often contain JavaScript that do things. Like if you have a web page that acts like an app, there's probably a lot of JavaScript. Um, There's like a lot of unsavory stuff uh, that ads do that use JavaScript. But the way they're delivered in the web page is usually there's, um, if you're familiar with HTML, there's different kinds of tags and one of the tags other kinds of tags are called script tags, right? They they look like angle bracket, script, close angle bracket. And then usually in a um, modern web page, usually all they do are all they do is link to other files that the browser should download that contain code in them and execute them. But sometimes they do contain code themselves uh, within the tags themselves instead of referring to other files. But Um, they're actually just like any other HTML element. So you don't see them on the page, but that's because, um, I think they're set to display none. Most certainly I found that if you accidentally select it through CSS and you set, um, set display to flex or to, um, block, you know, a a more normal, visible sort of display style, you'll see all the code. It'll just be printed right there in the web page. Anyway, that is a little wacky and uh, I hope putting technical stuff early in the podcast didn't uh, make you leave. Because the next one is about hot water gaskets. Now, under kitchen sinks, and probably bathroom sinks, there's something that plumbers, or at least the plumber who came to my apartment last week, calls a hot water shutoff. It's a knob that lets you shut off the hot water that goes to the sink. And inside of, inside of the, the pipe uh, connected to that knob, there's, there's a rubber gasket and that gasket can break down over time. And when it does, the pieces of the gasket end up between the hot water feed and the aerator of your sink faucet. Um, The aerator being, uh, I don't think every sink faucet has an aerator, but basically the end of your faucet. And when those pieces of gasket are there, it could either clog the water flow completely or it can greatly reduce it. In, our, in the case of our sink and our, our faucet, most of the bits seem to end up in the aerator um, and it reduced our water pressure, but, it's, but things still worked. So what you're supposed to do to prevent that gasket from breaking um, is you're supposed to exercise it, which means to slowly engage the hot water shutoff then disengage it again. And you have to do it slowly because if you do it quickly, that, well, that could rip the gasket. So the gasket, hot water gasket, pretty fragile.
1: Uh,
0: the next finding is uh, about ergonomics. Um, so uh, I'm right-handed, and I use a vertical mouse... And vertical mice have handedness, right? Because your, your hand is sitting, uh, sits vertically, right? Your, oh, I'm sorry. There's like a loud cat here. One moment. Please stop that, Dr. Riley. Okay. Anyway, your hand is in like a neutral handshake position where your thumb is pointing up towards the ceiling and your, uh, your pinky and you know the 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 chopping part of your hand I guess is facing down, so given that um, you know a mouse has to choose when it's a vertical mouse, whether it's left handed or right handed so it could fit your hand, I've been using a right handed vertical mouse and it has helped my wrist a lot, but there's still too much stress on my right hand and my right wrist because of I think keyboard bias where You know, um, a lot of keyboard combinations, um, you know, and like frequently used control keys are on the right. Like things like enter and space, for example, on my keyboard are on the right. So I decided to try switching to a left-handed mouse. So it turns out it is no big deal to switch to a left-handed mouse, even if you're right-handed. right handed Uh, I didn't do any kind of like sophisticated gaming or anything like that or precise drawing. But for like clicking around a web page or switching windows and things like that, it is totally fine to use um, another handedness of mouse. The next finding is lap desks. So I uh, heard about lap desks recently. They look ridiculous, right? They are basically cushions with a board on them. And you put your computer on there and it provides a flat surface so that you can keep your your laptop and your mouse uh, on a flat, even surface while you, you know, slouch on your couch. Um, they kind of work, though, however, because, uh, you know, I tried it out and, you know, I have a small laptop... Uh, a 13-inch laptop. Uh, I have, like, a, the aforementioned, you know, vertical mouse. And then I have this large uh, ergonomic keyboard. And, like, all three of these fit on this, um, this lap, lap desk. And it was, like, it was pretty comfortable. And I, I didn't feel any strain while using that. The next finding is about pizza dough. So... Uh, again, not every finding. most findings won't blow you away. You may have already known this, but um, using one-third wheat flour and two-thirds white flour gets us the pizza dough texture that we're accustomed to. It's just like a little bit rough, but like mostly pretty soft. And it does taste fine if you use it um, 30 minutes after kneading, which is often what I do because, um, you know, we're like, what are we having for dinner? Pizza. Well, we better make it real fast and You know get it going but uh, this time I made a lot more than we needed and I let the rest of it sit for an entire hour and it gets huge you get so much more of it uh, if if you know you just let the pizza dough sit which you know is probably obvious but um, it really helped me to have it confirmed the other thing is about sausage on pizza Again, very basic. But Italian sausage needs to be pre-cooked before you put it on a pizza. Like if you are cooking pizza on a pizza stone or baking steel or something like that, you'll only need to cook the pizza for seven minutes. And in that time, that Italian sausage won't be cooked. So you gotta cook it ahead of time on, in a pan, then put it on there, or maybe at the same time, or no, no, a little bit ahead of time. And then finally, I have a long finding uh, about the coronavirus stimulus bill because um, there was a lot. There was a lot in it. These are details mostly from an episode of the Daily, which you know you could just go listen to that if if you you know really want a, a full and detailed thing. But basically, um, the coronavirus virus stimulus bill had three parts, and the first two parts were uncontroversial. Uh, The first part was an $8.3 billion appropriation for government organizations directly fighting the pandemic, like the Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC. That passed on March 6th. The second part was a bill providing paid leave to workers that had to stay at home because of the coronavirus. Um, It's estimated to cost hundreds of billions of dollars, and they didn't actually stop to figure out how much it cost. It provided two weeks of pay for people that, uh, missed work because of quarantine or to undergo testing. And it provided up to 12 weeks of uh, pay for people that have to miss work, uh, because their kids have to stay home because daycares and schools are shut down. I, I, I was, I was pleasantly surprised by that. But then the third part was about stabilizing the economy. And this is where there's an actual controversy and debate and, um, Negotiation had to happen. So it pays $1,200 per person for people making under uh, $75,000 a year. It extends unemployment benefits to gig workers, which is huge. Uh, and then it gives $75 billion to airlines. Uh, I think those three parts were controver- or uncontroversial, even though uh, three parts of a third part, I guess, even though they're not really uh, the... The airline thing, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not really sure what's in that. But uh, so Trump, via Mnusen, initially put forth a $425 billion fund for the Federal Reserve to distribute as they see fit to companies with no oversight or any conditions. Um, so uh, Senate Democrats called this a slush fund or some of them did, but which it basically was. Uh, they they pointed out that there is potential and likelihood of this uh, just becoming something that the Trump administration hands out to whoever they want without being checked at all. Uh, and it's actually much like, as The Daily points out, and basically I'm just summarizing The Daily in this finding, um, uh, like TARP from 2008 when... Um, there was is, there is that big global financial crisis uh, that eventually caused like a huge populist reaction um, for, as a result of all the banks being bailed out, yet people like losing tons of jobs and never really recovering from that. And, and that populist reaction is what part of what Trump wrote, um, you know, along with like pure, pure racism um, to to get elected. Um, so, but, but yeah, then of course, then he proposed this through Mnuchin. Uh So the Democrats asked for specifics about who could get it and what recipients can do with it. Uh, Mitch McConnell uh, attacked this uh, by citing uh, parts of the House bill, which seemed to have nothing to do with uh, stabilizing the economy etc. But what he was actually doing was citing parts of the House bill, which was not being voted on by the Senate at all. Uh, that's, that was, that was uh, characteristically, in my opinion, slimy. Um, but in the end, a deal was made in the Senate on oversight on March 25th. The Senate passed it that night, and I think the House passed it today. Uh, and and it's been signed into law since. But um, there, there, there are now oversights and restrictions. And this, this I'm getting from the New York Times. Um, so companies between 500 and 10,000 employees can borrow at 2% or less if they don't outsource or offshore their jobs until two years after repayment. Companies with less than 500 employees really small companies can get loans from banks for two months of payroll and other operating expenses. If they do not lay off workers or at least rehire ones, they've already laid off and loans in that case are limited to 10 million. Um, so the the other interesting thing is companies don't actually have to pay back loans for two months of payroll. Um, if, if they actually use the money. And they don't give more than 10K to every single employee. So, you know, you, you can't just give that to the president of the company uh, and then, like, not pay back that loan. Uh, three, $350 billion is for small business loans, and $500 billion is for airlines and uh, what, you know, things like Lockheed, basically the military and industrial complex. Um, or, or things in the military industrial complex, the industrial part of it. Um, I'm not sure if the 500 billion is in addition to the 75 billion for airlines or not. I'll have to look at that. Um, companies that take loans, uh, you know, whatever their size, have these restrictions. Uh, executive raises are limited to. Uh, there's this formula: current pay minus 3 million. If you take that and then divide that by two, then add 3 million, that's your maximum raise. I'll, I'll try to put this in text form somewhere where it's much easier to understand. But like the example, if you plug into this formula, if the executive made $25 million last year, their maximum raise is 25 million minus 3 million, which is 22 million divided by two, which makes it 11 million plus 3 million. So they could get a raise of 14 million I'm sure they'll be very sad that wraps it up for the findings this week uh, hopefully there'll be more next week uh, feel free to email me in any questions or findings you have on your own that uh, you know you you want me to talk about all right goodbye till next time)
1: i <laughs>